maybe I was petrified to my chair and I had to tell myself, well, you're going to get up and go to work. And that's how this came about for me. Just do what's in front of you to do. If I have asked God for an inspiration, an intuitive thought or decision, I'm going to act as if I'm going to take a risk that he's going to give that to me. And my experience with that and uh, take it, relaxing it and taking it easy is at nine months into my recovery from my sur- first surgery, I found out I was going to have to have it again. The very same thing. And they weren't even going to do it then. They were going to wait. And that was, well, we're going to wait until you get to that year. We're going to let you recover a year and then we're going to do it all over again because what we've done hadn't worked. And I was upset. And that's when I started searching again. I think maybe even until that time I had gotten a relief. I had gotten a lot of relief. But I knew that for me to go through this, I needed the freedom that the program promised me. And I, I found that. Uh, and I started working these steps over again. And uh, my, my whole life changed at that time. And uh, after I had the surgery, on that day, I, uh, there was a lot of things that happened in those two years that I was recovering that I did not get to take part in that was um, supposed to be a, a real important time in our life, Bobby and I's life. And one of the things that was going to happen in, in uh, that year after my one year of recovery was the international convention. And I have never been to an international convention And uh, I think it was like five weeks after my second surgery, and it was practically, I'm sure, about the lowest point that I had been in, I received a letter, and GSO calls it a loving invitation to speak at the International Convention. And Bobby began to read the letter for me, and I I said, uh, oh, they made a mistake. And there's a lot of meetings up at the International. Uh, they have a lot of workshops, and they invite, uh, they invite people in the fellowship that's going to be there to take part in these. And they give you a topic to talk on and all. And uh, so I said, oh, they made a mistake. And Bobby said, no, I don't think they made a mistake. And he said, you need to read this. So I read it. And uh, the reason why I thought they made a mistake is because it had come under the name of Alice. And Alice is my name, but I've never used it. It's just on my driver's license and legal things because it's my first name and I've always gone by my middle name. And uh, so I called GSO. And uh, at the bottom it had a PS. It said, uh, our computer data shows a Danny F. Uh, at the same address would this be one in the same so I called and I, I talked to the woman that was in charge and uh, and uh, let her know that it was one in the same and there was some little papers that I had to sign and I made a decision that day that I was going to act as if God knew more than me and I was going to act as if I was going to go to that international convention <laughs> And what happened through that was I become a part of life again. 
and I knew what the expression meant, the joy is in the journey. Because I had from that time until July to get ready and act as if I was going to go. And at first I said, well, I think God's playing a joke on me. And I was a little angry. And Bobby said, no, I don't think God does that. So then I decided, well, maybe he has a sense of humor. (laughs) There was no way that I could see that in July I'd get on a, a plane and go to the international convention. But I decided that I was going to act like I was going to go. And I was going to do everything that it took for me to make the trip. And then if the day came and I couldn't go, I'm sure they wouldn't have any trouble finding someone else. They were supposed to have 60,000 people there. (laughs) And uh, I made me some clothes, which I had put off doing because, you know, I didn't want a bunch of clothes with that big old brace. So I just had kind of wore all that stretch stuff. So I made me some clothes and I planned the trip and I, I did some fun things to get ready to go to that convention. And we called around and found a place to stay because we hadn't made arrangements for that. And we had, uh, we had a delegate from out there that said, sure, you can stay with us. And, and uh, the day came and I got, on the, I got on the plane. And I went to that convention. And uh, my topic was freedom through acceptance. <laughs> and that was something I could talk about. Because I had become free. And that's just one of the miracles in my life. Just one. So if you're having trouble with the God idea, just take a risk and act as if. (laughs) And when you ask him for something, you act as if he's going to give it to you. And it always comes from looking back. And that's how my faith and my trust grew taking a risk and acting as if he was going to produce and when he did seeing the outcome seeing the outcome Uh, it's a wonderful life today to be able to live that way on the next page there's a principle that says being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times now when I was new like within the first year I guess if I'm going to be real honest you know I considered myself new for about two or three months because I came in knowing a lot I mean what I knew like to killed me today I know that when it says having just made conscious contact with God I see it differently. I think to me that means I just woke up and I prayed and so I've just made conscious contact with God for that day. I don't think it means, I don't think it's something that I can just use just when I was new. Because after you get a few 24 hours behind you, you think, well, I've made that conscious contact with God. You know, so I'm really not that inexperienced anymore. But every day is a new day, and we're just working with the 24 hours that we have every day. So every morning I have to remake that conscious contact with God. And that's how I see that principle right there. Every day is new for me whenever I, I start out. 
and uh, and a lot of days just having made conscious contact with God, I, I'm not inspired. And what what really amazes me is that I have these wonderful inspirations, or intuitive thoughts or ideas, and then before I get to tell someone, I hear someone else say it, and it's like they steal it from me. I want it to be mine. And I, I think, I, you know, it just it just blows my mind that, uh, you know, I, I have this this real thought, you know, this sort of spiritual uh, revelation come to me. And then the next speaker I hear says it from the podium. And then if I say it, you know, everybody's going to think I got it from the speaker, that it wasn't original. <laughs> and one of my girl said to me maybe you just so it it makes I think you know well you know I just can't think of anything inspirational or intuitive and one of my girls said well maybe you just both had it at the same time and they said it before you and I used to be selfish with things like that even like if I'd have these these little uh, realizations I just wanted to keep it I didn't want to share it with anyone it was I don't know, it made it more special to me. And now I know what I have to do is, if some, you know, wonderful spiritual message comes through to me, I need to tell it right away, or someone else is going to get it before me and get credit for it. So what this has done is it's allowed me to share more, to share more. Because that's kind of like my stuff. You know, I want to use it. It's not always good... uh, One of the things that I have to use all the time is, well, you know, whatever I'm going through is uh, or whatever I want to do or not want to do. I ask myself, is this is this for the good of AA as a whole? And if I can't, you know, if I can't see that it's going to be good for AA as a whole, I don't do it. And uh, sometimes I have to act against what I really want to do because it's going to be good for AA as a whole, because that's what it's all about for me today. And uh, we do get some promises after that. And it says, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We usually conclude this period with meditation. And this is the prayer that comes with the meditation. A prayer that we'd be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. We ask especially for freedom from self-will and are careful to make no request for ourselves only. And then it reminds us that we can ask anything for ourselves as long as someone else can be helped. And boy, could I get carried away with that. You know, like I really need a new core of God because I can pick up a bunch of people and carry them to the meetings. That's one we have to be careful about. <laughs> but we're covered. He lets us cover our behinds further down. In the last paragraph it says, and ask for the right thought or action. And then we have to be willing to act on it. The principle after that is we constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. And another prayer, thy will be done. Now, several times we've gone through that, that same prayer. Then some more promises. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, angry, 
anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions, we become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily. That's... Uh, when I first, first met Bobby, I mean, somebody used the expression, following Bobby around was like having a comet by the tail. And that's about how it was. I mean, this man would call me at 6 o'clock in the morning and I'd wonder if he had gone to bed. I mean, I didn't have to be to work until 10 and here he was waking me up at 6. And uh, he would show me this in the book. Well, we don't tire so easily now. I can do more because I'm not so tired all the time. This is what happens. This is a promise that's come true for me. And uh, actually, when I'm doing God's work, what I know is God's work, and when I'm living by the principles, this is a, a promise that has come true for me. I've been able to do miraculous things that I never thought possible. I mean, that that would have been considered physically unable for me to do because God has made that possible for me. Is this mine? Then it tells us in, in uh, that little bitty paragraph, we alcoholics are undisciplined. So we let God discipline us in the manner we have just outlined. It doesn't say that we are going to be able to discipline ourselves. This states real clearly we are undisciplined. We never become disciplined. God disciplines us. And he does that the way that's just explained through the 10th and 11th step. That's how we become disciplined. Then it says, once again, faith without works is dead. And Bill says, the next chapter is entirely devoted to step 12. I have about uh, 35 minutes left uh, to go. And I'm going to do as much as step 12 as possible. And when we get to uh, 6.15... Y'all can let me know if you want to go for one more hour at that time because LaFon said that we could go until about 7, I think. And that would uh, probably give us a chance to cover a vision for you. Very rarely in one day do I get to cover more than the first seven chapters in a vision for you. In fact, never. I've never been able to cover more. Um We also, with everything else, we get an insurance policy with the 12th step. And it states that in the first sentence. It says, practical experience, this is the promise, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intense work with other alcoholics. Uh, So that is our insurance policy, working with other alcoholics. Then it tells us why. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion, and here is the principle. 
carry this message to other alcoholics. You know, I can tell a lot of people about Alcoholics Anonymous, but if the message is not getting to other alcoholics, I'm really not not doing uh, the 12th step. There's a lot of ways for us to do this. Um, we can we can be too anonymous sometimes, uh, and we're we're unable to carry the message when we are too anonymous. And the people who uh, carry on the stigma of alcoholics more than anyone are alcoholics. So it's important that I allow the people who need to know, and we've given some suggestions already, like ministers and doctors. Through the CPC committee, it can be attorneys or professional people. Uh, let them know that I am available to help other al- to help alcoholics through Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's not breaking our anonymity. That's you know, that's being available to carry the message to other alcoholics. That's what that does. And then I can live by this principle. Then right away we get six promises in the next paragraph. This is what's going to happen if we do that. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover. To see them help others. To watch loneliness vanish. To see a fellowship grow up about you. To have a host of friends. And that comes by carrying the message to other alcoholics. It tells us, again, where we can find these people that we're going to be able to help. It says you can easily find some by asking a few doctors, ministers, priests, or hospitals. Uh, I suggested uh, working with CPC committees or a PI committee. That's good. Uh, Going into... uh, Treatment facilities. We hear a lot today about about treatment facilities and people coming out of them and the mixed messages that they have and, uh, you know, the things they talk about. If the people in treatment facilities have a misconception about AA, that's our fault. Because we hadn't gone in there and let them know. We have a one-page uh, flyer that comes from AA and it says, and it's free. You don't have to buy it. It says what AA is and is not. And it states real clearly what AA is and is not. And if someone comes into AA thinking that AA is things that it is not, that's our fault. Our PI committee goes into every treatment facility in in our uh, district. I think now we have this going. Uh, It started when, uh, when I was DCM. That we take one one night a week, the treatment facility wants us to go in there, and we give a one-hour presentation on what AA is and is not. And this is done through our PI committee. We use the little tape that is put out by GSO, and it's called uh, Hope Alcoholics Anonymous. It is it is one of the best uh, best tools that I have ever seen. It covers every facet in about 20 minutes that AA has, uh, everything from uh, working the steps to sponsorship and birthdays and anonymity. It just covers everything. And we show that and we talk about the little sheet, what AA is and is not, 
and we answer, we're there to answer questions. And, and we don't get into controversy about the difference between uh, drugs and alcohol. We stay out of all of that kind of stuff. And we don't contradict the treatment center and what they teach. We just let them know what we're about. And hopefully when they come out, if they're an alcoholic, they can come to AA and, and get what we need, what they need. And, and they have received a part of our message that is correct. As long as we leave the treatment facility to do our work, there's going to be some mixed messages. It's our responsibility to let the patients know what AA is, and there's not. It is not the treatment facility's responsibility to do that. It tells us uh, after that in the next pages of how to, uh, how to work with a newcomer. And I'm just going to go through these real fast, I think, uh, because there's one or two maybe on every page. Uh, it says, don't start out being an evangelist or reformer. That's in that first paragraph right after we find the drunk that we're going to work with. At the bottom it says, so cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. And all of those are pretty uh, self-explanatory. The next page at the top it says, if he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste your time trying to persuade him. I had one of my girls call me one time and she said, guess what I'm doing? Well, I didn't have a trouble guessing. I could tell right away. And uh, I said, well, I think you're drinking. Yeah, she said, I am. I said, what are you calling me for? She said, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I said, well, you're either supposed to call me before you take the drink or when you decide you don't want to drink. You're not supposed to call me when you're drinking. I said, whenever you get ready to quit drinking, call me. And she did. And she talks about that a lot because it surprised her so much (laughs) that I would tell her that. You know, what can I say to her? If she's out to drink, she's going to be drinking. There's nothing I can say to her then that's going to make a difference. So I take this literally. I really, you know, if they don't want to stop drinking, I don't waste my time with it. I just don't. And I tell them, you know, uh, I go a little bit further than that. I I think, you know, it takes more than to stop drinking. I have requirements to my sponsorship, and I tell them that right away. The first requirement is that you will go through the book with me and you will work the steps with me. And if you're not willing to do that, I'm not willing to sponsor you. And sometimes they balk about the fifth step. I have one that's kind of doing that now. Sometimes they agree and they never come back for their next appointment. And sometimes they are so anxious they call me. And uh, it's wonderful when they do that because I know they mean business. Then it goes on and it tells us, you know, they're they're really real simple uh, principles to live by and to follow whenever we're going to work with someone else. It says, don't deal with him when he is very drunk unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. So this is telling me we're not going to deal with him. We're going to help the family. Maybe the family needs to know about Al-Anon. Maybe the family needs a safe place. Maybe there's children and, and the drunk is violent and we can help them and take them to a safe house. This is our responsibilities as an alcoholic 
we cannot forget about the family because this if our prospect is ever going to recover if he is still with his family uh, we need to remember the family that he's with the last paragraph never force yourself upon him that's pretty clear huh the next page at first this this is when it starts uh, really getting into how we're going to approach and what we're going to do at that first visit. I think I've talked about that this morning, about the difference between sponsorship and uh, 12-stepping. And right in here is literally 12-stepping and how we make a 12-step call. I'll never forget when uh, I've referred already to my son, but when I first came in, he was just wonderful with me. He had three years sobriety and he was willing to share his, uh, his recovery with his mother and it was wonderful to have the support that I did and the first time I was going to uh, to help someone the first thing he, get, he told me was I think you better read the chapter working with others and so I did that and the second thing he told me was uh, because I was going to take this person into my house he said you better hide everything you don't want stolen and I said, oh, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> and he said, Mama, that's a drunk. And so I know that today. You know, a drunk is a drunk is a drunk. And uh, just because, you know, I'm being the nice guy, that doesn't mean that's going to make them be any different than they are. So uh, I was able to do that. And I found out a lot about that in the chapter of working with others. It touches on all of those kind of things. Uh, so the first thing it tells us about that, it says, at first engage in general conversation. So you go out there and you just kind of talk like you're just talking with anybody. Well, what's going on? You know, how, how did your day go? That kind of stuff. And if they don't uh, moon you right away or throw up on you, you know, it, you can get a little past that. Well, that happened to me one time. And, uh, I mean, she even offered me a drink. And uh, it was really funny when I was sitting and waiting I had someone call me because she had taken the call from uh, from the central office and she said this is an this was a real compliment you know she said this is a real old lady she's 76 years old and I figured I needed someone a little older to go with me so she called me and uh, I said okay and uh, then my next thought was well you know I mean this is like it was in the middle of the night and I thought the, the first thought, I've got to be honest, was 76 years old. Well, why bother? I mean, you know, I don't think if I was 76 years old, anybody could convince me or uh, think, make me believe that I needed to quit drinking. I'm, this is just my own opinion, but maybe it, it will help. I mean, it didn't help her either. She must have decided, you know, she really didn't need us. She came to a few meetings, so. Then when I was sitting in the parking lot waiting for this person that called me to go, uh, I asked myself, uh, I can't believe I really need this to stay sober. <laughs> we forget that we really do need this. And uh, anyway, it turned out okay. And if nothing else, we were able to help her husband. Um, the next thing it tells us on, on, uh, on page 92, it says, uh, in the middle there, it says, be careful not to brand him an alcoholic. And then the next paragraph, it says, Continue to speak of alcohol 
is as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. And that goes back to the doctor's opinion. So to leave out the doctor's opinion would be a, a drastic error for someone because that's where we, we find out about our disease and that's what we talk about. And this was the suggestion that Dr. Silkworth gave to Bill when Bill went to him and said, look, I've been talking and with a bunch of drunks and doing, you know, working with a bunch of drunks and no one stays sober. And this is where Bill got this information that he's writing about here. Dr. Silkworth told him, he said, Bill said, you know, you just, you come on too strong talking about God and all that stuff. said, why don't you just wait about all of that and talk to him about his disease and tell him what's wrong with him. And so the next time he went out and he went to Dr. Bob and Dr. Bob was a doctor. And you'd have thought he'd have known all of that. And that's when Bill started talking about the disease and what the alcohol did in, in your body. And the reason why you drank again was because you couldn't not drink again as long as you drank again. And that's when Dr. Bob began to know what was wrong with him. The doctor's opinion is the beginning of the answer. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? So we know that at that first visit, all we're going to talk about is general conversation, and we're going to talk about the disease. It also says on the next page that we're going to use everyday language in that middle paragraph to describe spiritual principles. We're not going to get into a lot of theologic things. Uh, but the most important thing we're going to do is we're going to tell him exactly what happened to us. We talk about our own experience, not someone else's. What happened to me? And who knows me better than me? And that's what I have to offer. And by that, if they can identify with something that I say, maybe they, they will think, well, you know, maybe there is something to this. It says further down, to be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. You know, there's um, our, our action that we take always has to be a building process, always a building process. And that's where constructive comes in. Uh, you know, any time that if I'm going to uh, criticize or talk about somebody else, criticism is always destructive. No, uh, you have never, you know, any time you criticize somebody thinking you're going to help them, what you've done is you have destroyed a little part of them. So today I'm always real careful about that, that all of my, you know, all of my conversations and my help with others is on a constructive basis. Um, It also tells us in here that, uh, you know, we want to make sure that they know that we're not representing any kind of religion or any kind of a faith. Uh, it says that we never talk down from a spiritual hilltop. And you'll find this on page 95 uh, in that first paragraph, about the middle of the paragraph. You know, once we become, um, uh, this, is, this is a lot of time where my uh, self-righteousness comes in. You know, I want so badly for the women that I work with to have what I have. I think that I can some, in some way force them force it on them. 
And they have to find that for themselves. And a lot of times it comes across as, as talking down from a spiritual hilltop. Because I think, you know, that I've reached the pinnacle. And if I want to be honest with it, I'm probably not even halfway there. Because what I have learned is anytime I begin to think that I'm at the top, I know I have a long way to go. There's, you know, that's just not where uh, spirituality takes me today. On page 96, it says, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Maybe we're going to go and we're just going to plant a seed. And uh, that happens to me a lot. Uh, I don't know, for some reason, the women I see don't want what I have. They, uh, they're they just checking us out. Maybe they've, you know, uh, somebody has said, you have a, I think you have a drinking problem. So, Or maybe somebody has said, you need to go to AA. So they want to check out what it's all about, I think, more than anything. And uh, my standard thing is, uh, most of the time, they're not drunk when I get these calls. And I, I will say, well, you know, I ask them right away, are you drinking? <laughs> and uh, and they say, no, I'm not drinking. And I, I'll say, well, there's a, why don't I pick you up for a meeting? And I always say that, and whether I have planned to go to a meeting or not, I make the trip and pick them up and take them to a meeting if they're willing to go. And we get to talk on the way, and, and we go to the meeting, and we get to talk. And sometimes it's been a birthday meeting, and they've been able to hear a speaker and uh, see the fellowship and the camaraderie and the joy. You know, Angie D. talks about the music of AA, and that the, she never heard the words, but she heard the music when she walked into an AA room, and it was the laughter and the joy coming from, uh, from the people in that room. And that was the music to her ears because she never saw that. And I heard that and I can identify with that. So it's more, that's that demonstration that we're going to show the newcomer. We, we can show them a lot in that uh, they, will, they will see a lot more than what they hear. What they hear usually their mind is too, too foggy. But uh, they'll remember our attitude and our behavior. At the bottom of the page it says, But you should not deprive your family or creditors of money they should have. And this is in, uh, in reference to if someone is homeless or if you're going to take someone in or if you're going to give up some of your money to another drunk. Uh, sometimes it's a fine line at how far we should go with money. Uh, it has been my experience that if I'm willing to share whatever I have, I get back more than I ever gave. And this is just, I mean, this is just a fact of my life. If I have two dollars and I'm willing to give up one, I'll get two back and I come out ahead. Um, God has done this and he has shown me that over and over and over. And that's how together Bobby and I live our life. Um, Then it says, after that it says, um, Perhaps you will want to take the man into your home for a few days. But then this is the principle, if we're thinking about that. Be sure you use discretion. Be certain he will be welcomed by your family. And the way we can do that is to ask our family. That's a good way to start. Maybe you have, and listen to what they tell you. (laughs) Pay attention. Uh, Maybe you have children, and your children may be frightened of a drunk. They have reason to be, 
Maybe they've lived with you drunk. They know how drunks act. Um, it has always been my experience that if I'm not willing to bring someone into my home to work with them, that there are other ways. And, uh, you know, you can find a place if they need a home, maybe at the Salvation Army, or look into places that, you know, will take in the homeless. If you're going to work with them and they already have a home, but, you know, they're not too honest and your family doesn't care, maybe maybe your uh, spouse or your mate or whatever, your family is not in this program. They would not welcome another drunk in their house. Uh, they're so glad you're sober, they don't even want to see another drunk. And uh, maybe if you're going to work with them rather than in your home, you can meet them early at a meeting and... Uh, and start the steps go to their house if they have a house and there's a lot of ways that we can do it without subjecting our family to uh to a wet drunk or to a dry drunk even if they're not willing for that to happen because we're the ones who have to do this not them our family doesn't have to go through that if they do it's a plus but that's not a requirement for our sobriety then on the next page it tells us i'm going to skip a few It says, uh, one of the principles up here, it says, we have to act the Good Samaritan every day if need be. So this means that no matter what, I I have to do that. And if it's every day, every day, every day, I'm called on, then I have to do it every day, every day, every day. And um, sometimes that's exactly how I feel like it. Uh, Not a gain. Why me, Lord? Uh, evidently at that time, you know, when that's going on in my life, I guess he knows what I need more than I know what I need. Then it tells us further down in that little bitty paragraph, we seldom allow an alcoholic to live in our home for long at a time. This, I got into that, man. I, every once in a while, I think I know better than the book. And uh, I had someone move in with us, and, and what happened was, uh, you know, she did not pay attention, and she was dirty and didn't want to get clean, and she didn't want to pull her load. And uh, thank God when she said, I'm doing the best I can, my significant other said, well, that's not good enough. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> and uh, eventually she did leave, and uh, she got drunk. And uh, if, she, if she is still alive and out there... But the bad part about that is I found myself checking on her. I felt like I was with a, a real drunk again, just like when I was with my alcoholic husband. And uh, like I, I could tell she wasn't bathing, but I'd go and check in the other bathroom to see if the towel was wet. <laughs> or I'd go and sometimes her breath would smell bad. So I would, I would go and check and see if the toothbrush was wet before I would confront her about it. I thought I had to do that. And... Uh, she stayed about two months, and I can tell you that's too long at a time. <laughs> so now I think, you know, right away I let them know, uh, well, you have so long, and that's it. And at the end of that time, you're on your way. So they know before they get here how long they got. And uh, I'm going to tell one on Donna because she's here. She Donna's always been one to bring people into her home, and, and they've... She has taken a lot, and one day, you know, it was everything that this woman had done, and she had left. And what am I going to tell her? I said, goodbye. 
And it just blew her mind because she thought she had to just go into this long explanation to this drunk, you know, of what she had done to her and everything. And I just said, well, tell her goodbye, you know, be glad she's gone for one thing. I was glad when mine was gone, I'll tell you that. I wasn't glad she went and got drunk again. I thought she was, you know, got a job and had a place to live. And she just went to work. And in the middle of the day, they saw her walking off and she never came back. And I guess she just got real thirsty. Uh, right now we're uh, we have about five more minutes, and uh, and I'd like uh, we're almost through here. We can finish uh, we can finish chapter seven. And if y'all the crowd is getting thin, if y'all would like to go on and and uh, close, we'll I'll just go on for the next seven or eight minutes, and we'll finish up and quit there. Is that okay? Everybody's agreeable with that? Okay. I think we're all getting tired. We do have a, a little checkpoint real quick. And it says in the middle of page 98, job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. This is something that the newcomer must get straight if we are going to work with him. It doesn't depend on anybody else. And this is a checkpoint for anyone that's having trouble staying sober. Where is my dependence for my sobriety? Why am I trying to stay sober? Am I depending on God to help me or am I depending on that woman I was living with or that man I was living with or my children or, you know, my whatever it happens to be? Nothing's going to help keep me sober except God. And I have to know that right away. But the promise that comes from that is in the next paragraph, and it says he can get well regardless of anyone. So it doesn't matter about anyone or anything. We can get well. It doesn't say we're going to get better. It says we're going to get well. That in itself is a promise, just that I'm going to get well. Next page. Uh, I'm going on to the next page because there's a lot of promises there. Uh, in the first full paragraph, it talks about um, the keystone again. And uh, the keystone should be in place by this time because it says, Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. And this is when our recovery comes full circle. We have... We have had the opportunity to recover we have gone through the steps we have reached that spiritual experience and now we are with the new man and we are sharing our experience and strength and hope and together we get to walk in this spiritual progress where it is a we program and we have passed on what has been given to us and uh, and so I, I see where this is this is the completion of our of our arch And then the promises comes. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, and remember that, not when we're going through it all the time. I have walked through some things knowing, but most of the time it's when I look back. We realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power. 
and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. Out of all the promises, this has become my favorite. Because there have been many, many different circumstances in my life. I have been up, I have been down, I have been spiritually bankrupt, I have been physically bankrupt from time to time in the past ten and a half years of my sobriety now. But I know that each day has been a new day and a new uh, wonderful opportunity for me. Because I've never lost sight of, uh, of my higher power and his will for me and what he wants me to do. That's what the dictates mean, what he wants me to do. And as long as I can keep sight of that, I'm going to have that new and wonderful world, no matter what I'm going through. That's the joy of the program. Uh, at the bottom, there's one more prob- uh, promise there. It says, um, assuming we are spiritually fit, and that's the condition, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. And if you change the next paragraph there, it tells all of the things that we're not supposed to do. And you can change that and say that uh, where it says people have said we must not go where liquor is served, we can say we can go where liquor is served and it becomes a promise. And with every sentence, it's the same way we can change it into, uh, into a promise by doing that because these things have come to pass. On page 102, uh, we find out what our job is now. And I guess it is time to quit because this is kind of where I finish things up. In the ninth step, I find out that uh, what my purpose is. And in, uh, that's to be fit physically, emotionally, and spiritually. In the tenth step, I find out what my next function is. And that's to grow uh, in usefulness and effectiveness. And that's what the next two steps are going to do for me. And in the twelfth step, it tells me that my job now is to be in a place, and it's in the middle of the page, down on page 102. It says, your job now is to be in a place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. And the promise from that of, of uh, continuing with my purpose and growing in useful effectiveness and doing my job, the promise of that is God will keep you unharmed. And that, that really con, uh, concludes the first seven chapters of it. Uh, once again, we get an affirmation on page 103 at the bottom. It says, uh, after all our problems, after all our problems were of our own making, bottles were only a symptom. And we've heard that over and over again. And again, uh, the promise that says, besides, we have stopped fighting everybody and everything. We have to. That means I have to. This has been a wonderful day for me. It always revitalizes um, my, really, my spirit to go through one of these because I have a few days of reviewing and then I do it and and just the fellowship alone is wonderful. Uh, all of these things can come to you. Uh, it, it's 
it's not a you know it's not a secret deal here just follow the instructions and things happen uh, I hope that you've learned a little more got a little more tools for uh, for your recovery um, learn more about that design for living that we have today uh, I'm sure that's all and if anybody would like to go through the other chapters just call on me and we'll make arrangements to do that I love you thanks for having me